0: Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today we're going to be talking about Matthew 3 and God's eternal promise to Abraham, God's unilateral Suvisan covenant. I know we've talked about it a little bit before on various podcasts, but now we're going to kind of get in depth in this because Matthew 3 is all about this. So understanding the context of Matthew 3, first we are going to turn to Genesis. So everyone turn to Genesis. We're going to start with Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, this is before he's called Abraham, his name's Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So let's turn now to Genesis 17, this kind of continuation, there's a series of promises that are given to Abraham throughout the Bible, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abraham, but you shall now be called Abraham, for I have made you father of the multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come to you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Lastly, we're going to turn to Genesis 22. And everyone's kind of familiar with this story. This is God testing of Abraham. He says to him, he says, go take your son, your only son. And, you know, Ishmael's at this point too. But in God's mind, Isaac is the child of promise. And he says, take your only son, bring him up and sacrifice him to me. And Abraham goes up and he's about to do that. He's about to kill his only son. And God says, stop. Now I know that you serve me. And so what's the result of this entire sequence of events? God's promise to Abraham, this unilateral promise that reverberates throughout the Bible, and we see it eventuate in the ministry of John the Baptist and how he addresses the prevailing notions of that time. And and don't worry, this is all going to make sense. It's going to all figure into the context of Matthew 3, but this is what is said in Genesis 22. This is what he says, and pay attention, by myself. And so God here, Yahweh, he's swearing on himself this promise. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, and the Lord's all caps, which means he's saying Yahweh, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. Your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And this is a unilateral promise. This is not a conditional promise. This is God saying, because you did this thing, this is the promise, this is the benefit that I'm going to give you, independent of future acts. And this reverberates throughout the Bible. And we're going to kind of explore some of those themes. But for now, we're going to switch back to the Matthew 3 text. So for our purposes, we're going to start with Matthew 3, 5. And John the Baptist, he starts his ministry and he's preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Matthew 5, it says, then Jerusalem, all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Notice the hyperbole there. It says all Jerusalem, all Judea, all the region around. It's kind of like there's instead just a subgroup from each of these areas that are coming out to him. And and just so many people are coming out to him. It just says like all these people are coming out to him. The entire Israel did not just start following John the Baptist. But John the Baptist was a major figure. Enough to be mentioned in the works of Josephus, a Jew writing for a very Roman audience. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. He goes on to say, And do not think to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones." So on Facebook, one of these Calvinists, they posted like a little meme. And so this little picture and showing these stones and the memes purpose, the point of it was to say that God makes you believe and even stones, God could just force to believe. And that's what he saw as the point, the context, the purpose of John's quote to the Pharisees and Sadducees. So me, being the guy who I am, who doesn't leave well enough and alone, my wife always criticizes me. You don't have to try to debate or uh, try to correct everything you see on Facebook. Well, yeah, maybe. But I engaged this guy. And what was I trying to stress above anything else? Reading, comprehension. That's what I wanted to have a discussion about. I wanted to have a discussion about the context of Matthew 3 and what was John trying to communicate in context to his listeners? How did that fit Overall, in his message and fit what he had said prior to this particular phrase that this Calvinist was trying to use to show some sort of predestination or forced belief, something like that. Now, I might have already spoiled it for the listener, having talked about the Genesis 12, 17, and 22 context of Abraham's promise. But a rational reader, a normal reader, someone that you just find randomly to read this verse, should be able to come to the understanding just by reading the text that is presented. I wanted to talk to this Calvinist about the context and right off the bat you got a clear sense that this Calvinist did not understand the context of this quote at all. He didn't care about the context. He wanted a simple phrase to pull out a context to use for his theological purposes. and You could tell that in his attributing this comment to Jesus. He thought that Jesus said this phrase. This is kind of astounding to me. You're going to be a Calvinist and come to a group with a proof text and not even understand the context of your own proof text. You're not going to understand who was said to, why it was said, by whom it was said, and then you're going to just attribute it to someone who did not say it. It shows an astounding lack of understanding of what's going on in in what you're using to try to prove a point. You're using this to try to advocate your theology and you don't know where it's coming from. You would think at the very least this would inspire some humility. If someone says that's not the context, and you don't understand the context because you don't even understand who's speaking, that probably should give someone pause to hear out an alternative viewpoint on this issue, on this text, because they're coming from the text from a position, a higher position, of understanding why this text was said. Of course, that doesn't automatically make the person who understands the context more correct, but at least have the decency to pause and reconsider your position and hear the person out, and try to understand if the context that they're trying to present, if that's correct, accurate, and plausible. Don't double down. Don't double down. It makes you look incredibly foolish. Don't say, oh, the context doesn't matter. The context doesn't matter. This person disagrees with your understanding of the verse, and they understand the context better than you do, and they think the context matters. I think they might have the more weightier opinion in this case. Maybe just a little, just a little. So I struck up a conversation about reading comprehension. I'm not going to go straight to the phrase that he's trying to pull out of the context. I'm trying to go to the beginning of the context. In the beginning of the context, we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they're coming to John the Baptist. And right off the bat, you get a sense that this is a very hostile situation. He calls them brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And so coming to John... That was uh, activity that John saw as fleeing from the wrath to come. So when all of uh, Judea, all of uh, Jordan, you know, when they're all coming to John, they're all fleeing from the wrath to come. They're converting into his ministry, and as they are doing that, they are avoiding some sort of future punishment, that some sort of future apocalypse that John describes in his ministry elsewhere. But right off the bat, a competent reader can understand that there is a wrath to come, And this action that uh, all of Judea is doing is fleeing from that wrath to come. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, by coming to John, they are perhaps going to be partakers in this fleeing from the wrath to come. And right off the bat, you understand that he doesn't like these guys, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There might be some mutual hostility between these groups. And the very next verse says, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance so did john the baptist say you guys are no good go away turn around walk away you're not welcome here he didn't do that he tells them how to repent these people even though there's a hostile situation even though they don't like each other and even though these people might be hell-bent against john the baptist they might just be checking up on what he's doing to see what's going on what he's teaching stuff like that he thinks that these people can still flee from the wrath to come because he tells them how to do that he says therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance so i asked this calvinist and i don't start off by asking him about these stones or about his meme i ask about the context did john the baptist think that the Pharisees and Sadducees were eternally damned, or or that they were totally deprived, they couldn't turn to God on their own, they had to have some miraculous uh, turn from God in order to come to true repentance. Did John think that? Or did John think that there was hope for the Pharisees and Sadducees in spite of any hostility? And I worded the question as simply as I possibly could, because if you make your questions too lengthy, people tend to be able to avoid them more than very straightforward, simple questions. I said, did John the Baptist think that the Pharisees and Sadducees could flee from the wrath to come? Period. Did he think that? For those in the audience who have had experience debating Calvinists, what do you think his answer was? How do you think he responded to me asking that question? I'll give you a couple seconds, kind of mull it over. What would you do if you were a Calvinist and you were presented with that question? How are you going to answer that? If you answer yes, you know, what does that do to your proof text? If you answer no, what does that mean to people who are reading along with you? In standard Calvinist fashion, he didn't answer me. He did not answer the question. He didn't want to answer the question. He didn't want to talk about what the context means. He didn't want to talk about reading comprehension. He didn't want to talk about you know, what this does to his phrase and how it works in context. He didn't want to answer the question. So here's what ends up happening in cases like that. At least it happens with me. This is how I deal with people not answering the question. I will copy and paste the question again. You know, they don't answer the question. They try to distract. They try to go back to their little talking point and try to ignore the context. Just ask them again. Just say yes or no. Did John think that the Pharisees could repent? Did he think that they could flee from the wrath to come? And the more you ask the exact same question, and just like a simple question about reading comprehension, this is not asking him to query some knowledge from the depths of his mind or something like that. It's basically read the text and regurgitate what the text is saying. And the more you ask the exact same question, a simple question about reading comprehension, the more they look foolish when they avoid this question. And what they are trying to do What they hope to do is to get you to move on to a different point. They don't want to be talking about, you know, just simple reading comprehension of the text that they want to use as a proof text. They don't want to do it because the context undermines their entire point that they're trying to make. And so they try to shift the conversation elsewhere. You just got to refocus them, re-ask the same question. And the more you re-ask it, the more they look foolish. And as they refuse to answer, you just, you kind of got to add in some like mocking, you know? you know, you're not answering this question. Okay, how about this? It's uh, either you type two letters or you type three letters and hit enter. I'll make it easy for you. You could copy and paste this. Here, I'm going to write right now. Yes, no. You just have to copy and paste one of these statements and just throw it in as the answer. You know, you, you need to point out that this is a simple question. It's a simple reading comprehension question and they can't answer it. They can't read the text and then just answer about that reading. So the next thing they will try to do, and this happens all the time too, they'll try to appeal to, you know, this text has to be understood in such and such way, or your, your interpretation of it is incorrect without answering your question. So change your question up just a little bit. Just say, you know, how about this? I have something that's testable. This is something we could go do tomorrow. We could take this text down to the mall. We could just grab a random person, someone with normal reading comprehension abilities, just a random person, and we could ask them this question. Did John the Baptist think that the Pharisees could flee from the wrath to come? Yes or no? So you, Mr. Calvinist, make a prediction. Try to understand what a normal, competent reader would take from this text. This is not asking about what's the inspired interpretation of this text. This is you predicting what a normal person grabbed off the street, what they would think about this text. Remember, this is testable. This is something we can go do and then see if you were right See if you had a correct notion about what a common person would take away from this text. This is not even about interpretation, your interpretation of the text, what the text means. This is just about what a normal person, grabbed at random, would think about this text. And these Calvinists, these classical theists, they don't like this at all. They don't want a neutral third point of view introduced into the debate. They don't want someone coming in without a stake in the game trying to intermediate and then tell what's a more rational approach to the text. They don't want to do that because then their proof texts all fall apart because their proof texts do not rely on reading comprehension. Instead, their proof texts depend on, rely on the theology that they bring to the text and they force into the text. And the context of their quotes of their proof texts just do not support the conclusions that they want to make. So make a prediction, Mr. Calvinist. If we just take a random person who has decent reading comprehension abilities to read this text, what will they think that this says? And when we get this information, if we get this information, we'll know what the natural approach to the text should be. And what will the Calvinist then say to that? Just kind of think about the Calvinist mentality. How does the Calvinist think? oh no, we can't trust a third-party reader. We can't trust a random person off the street. They don't understand spiritual things, and uh, they're like dead people, and, and only us Calvinists know how to actually read the Bible. So they appeal not to common reading comprehension standards. They don't appeal to basic understanding of the text that anyone can access. They appeal to some sort of secretive knowledge of the Bible that they themselves are the only ones who have and it's a very cult like it's a very cultish calvinism they they operate in their own little world where only they know the bible the true meaning of the bible and you got to kind of take the face value of the text of the bible and just throw it in the trash because they got their own theology and that that, that trumps everything. That trumps normal reading comprehension standards. That, that trumps scholars who come to the Bible trying to figure out canonical criticism, what this text means to the people at that time. All those people can't be trusted because they're not spiritual people. We can't trust them We're just reading the Bible on face value and, and their conclusions that they come from the text. The Bible has to be read in this spiritual way that only the Calvinists can understand. And at that point, at that point the debate's pretty much over because what they're admitting is that they think that the Bible is nonsense, absurd, you can't understand the Bible, you can't read the Bible, the Bible is not comprehensible just by reading the Bible, and you have to come to the Bible with these prior assumptions that you force into the text. And here, and here's where I said, okay, Mr. Calvinist, um, here's where we're at an impasse. I don't think the Bible is an absurd document that only could be read in some spiritual light. I mean, the ancient Greeks, they thought that about the Iliad and the Odyssey. They thought, you know, on the face value, the text is saying some pretty absurd things, but you kind of have to reject that. Instead, we got our own philosophical notions that you bring to the text. And if you read Homer in light of Plato, then you come to some real spiritual truths. And all you have to do is read the Iliad and the Odyssey right, and you can't just take it on the face value. Then you understand these spiritual truths. And I reject that. I think that's absolute nonsense. And so we don't even come to the Bible with the same presuppositions. I come to the Bible to treat the Bible how it is written and how it was to be perceived by the audience of the Bible. And that's what I care about. And I don't care about this super secretive spiritual reading that uh, is totally arbitrary. I mean, how do you tell between one fanatic like a Mormon or something coming to the Bible with this weird Mormonistic theology that they're reading into the text and a Calvinist doing the same? If you're not coming to the Bible on a straightforward reading comprehension basis, then your basis is up in the air and it's unreliable. You can't trust anything. So I told him we're at an impasse. You just don't believe the Bible is a serious document. You believe it's it needs to be rejected in favor of your own private theology. We we can't we'd have nothing more to discuss. Conversation's over. You are telling me that reading comprehension is not going to get to the meaning of what's written in the Bible. I just don't buy that. So let's use reading comprehension and go over Matthew 3. So John is approached by the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he says, "A brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. Of course, the Pharisees and the Sadducees could repent. They could turn to John's ministry. Did they? Probably unlikely that too many of them did. Maybe some of them did. The Pharisees were pretty widespread and very diverse. Probably not the Sadducees who were in power and a very small elite type of group. They're probably just scouting him out to see if he were a threat to the Roman Empire because the Sadducees, they didn't want to lose their power. And John says to them, do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So a normal reader using reading comprehension skills will understand we have Abraham as our father is a counter to John's command to bear fruits worthy of repentance. So how does that work? So we got Abraham, and Abraham has this promise by God to make him a mighty nation. Fast forward to Moses. Moses is on Mount Sinai. You know, this is the exodus that happened. He leads Israel out of Egypt. Then he's on Mount Sinai, and God's about to destroy all of Israel. And what does Moses say to God? What's his argument? He says, God, these are your people. Remember your covenant with Abraham remember your promise to Abraham. What did you tell him? You said you're going to make him a great and mighty nation and multiply his descendants. God destroying all of Israel, that would be counter to God's promise. So Moses's argument is literally don't destroy Israel because you have this unilateral covenant with them. And what did God want to do on Mount Sinai? He wanted to kill them all except for Moses and then make of Moses a mighty nation And Moses just didn't see that as a fulfillment of Abraham's promise. And Moses says, just kill me if that's, you know, what you're wanting to do. Spare these guys for the sake of Abraham to whom you made a covenant with. And God did spare these guys. God did spare them. Fast forward now to Malachi 3. This is a very famous verse in Calvinism. Malachi 3, I the Lord do not change. But let's read the verse, uh, the full verse, the full verse that's not often quoted for I am the Lord, I do not change, therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. So the context of this verse in Malachi 3 is Israel, the sons of Jacob, are very evil and God should destroy them. If God was just and God was exercising justice, God would just kill them all. But he says, I don't change. And what doesn't he change about? It's this unilateral promise to Abraham that he's going to make of Abraham a great and mighty nation. And this reverberates throughout the Bible. And God's always promising to punish Israel, but leave a remnant. And a remnant is a theme that we see that God, you know, he's never going to completely destroy Israel. And that's what he's talking about for, I am the Lord, I do not change, therefore you are not consumed. He's saying, I'm not going to renege on my promise to Abraham. So therefore, I'm not going to kill you all like I should. I rightfully should do that. And then he talks to them and he says, you know, return to me and I will return to you. He's saying, you know, I'm not going to kill you all like I should. And instead, I'm going to show mercy. But you guys really need to return to me and then I'll start blessing you guys again. I should have killed you. I'm not going to do that. But return to me and I'll show mercy. So this idea that was pretty prominent in Jewish theology was that God is going to save Israel for the sake of being Israel. The Jews literally believed in inherited salvation. So let's turn to the works of Paul. Now, Paul, his ministry was to the Gentiles. And the Jews really hated this because, remember, the Jews were the chosen people. They were the special people. To them pertained the promises. And Romans 9 is really about this group dynamics. And Paul says something very controversial that the Jews are cut off. And this, of course, would violate this unilateral promise, this unilateral promise by which God said that he would not change. And in Hebrews, this is the time that it says this promise God cannot lie about. So before we get to Paul real quick, I'm just going to read the Hebrews reference. Hebrews 6.13 recounts the promise. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, Remember the Genesis 22 text when he swears on himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For the people swear by something greater than themselves, and all their disputes of oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Notice, this is an extra special promise. This promise doesn't have any equivalent in all of the biblical history This is a promise that God swears on himself. Where else does he do do that? And then in Hebrews it says this is an unchangeable promise. And then let's read this. So by that two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So he's saying, God swore on himself. God swore that he wouldn't change his mind. God said this is an eternal promise. This is a legit promise. This is not something that's going to be revoked conditionally. This is something that will happen. And God swore on himself to make this happen. This is not generally applicable to all God's promises. This is not generally applicable to everything that God says ever. This is something special. And it is indicated as special throughout the Bible. And this is what's being talked about in the Matthew three text, in the Hebrew six text, and then again in Romans nine. And Paul has to convince somehow the Jews that now the Gentiles are gonna be grafted in to this type of promise, to this type of you know, same sort of salvation that the Jews have. And the Jews really, really hate this idea. And they hate Paul as a result of this. And if you follow Paul's ministry, this is why he's persecuted. The other disciples, the other 12 disciples and stuff like that, they did not get the same persecution as Paul. And Paul primarily got it because he was teaching Jewish-Gentile equality, turning to Romans 9. Paul writes... They are israelites to them belong the adoption the glory the covenants the giving of the law the worship and the promises to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is in christ who is god over all blessed forever amen so what does he say it is not as though the word of god has failed he's explaining how the gentiles can be grafted in and the jews cut out of the promise he says but it is not as though the word of god has failed and what is the word of god this is the promise to abraham that reverberates throughout the bible For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Remember, Israel had a process by which Gentiles could be grafted in and become part of national Israel. They just had to obey the laws and they would be brought into various tribes in Israel. It is something that the Gentiles could do. This is both codified in the Old Testament rules. And it's remarked on by people who hated the Jews in the times of Jesus. The Greeks and the Romans, they write, You know All these Jews, they don't think that it's only this national Judaism who's part of this Jewish religion, this Jewish nationality. It's anyone who follows and cherishes their customs. Those people also are considered Jews. So it wasn't this lineage. It wasn't this genetics. It was this adopting of practices that brought you into the Jewish community. And Paul's pointing that out, that the Gentiles can be grafted in. As it sits, normal Jews recognize that Gentiles could become Jews. And then he tries to explain... Not all that have descended from Abraham are of Israel. He writes, and not all the children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac your offspring shall be named. Remember, Abraham had Isaac and Ishmael. He had two kids, but only one of his kids to the promise belonged. You know, Ishmael, he didn't count as national Judaism, he didn't count as national Israel. It's only through Isaac that all Jews are called Jews. And his point is this that you could be descended from Abraham, yet not have part in the promises of Abraham. And this is a key point for Paul making his point that, you know, and why does he have to make this point is because the Jews literally believed that them being descended from Abraham gave him some sort of advantage, some sort of, free pass for salvation or for inheriting the kingdom and his point is no it doesn't give you a free pass you need to take these ideas these popular ideas that are throughout the culture and you got to discard them because not everyone who descends from abraham gets the promise and that's shown through the lineage of ishmael the pharisees and the sadducees and the jews they're all the calvinists they all think in election irresistible election that people don't have choice in and john the baptist and paul they're the ones saying You know, there is a choice. God doesn't have to elect you guys based on some sort of calling or something like that. You could be cut off due to your actions, and other people can be brought in. It's not fatalistic, and it's very contingent on people's response, on people's actions. So back to Matthew 3, and he says, Do not say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So the context of God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham, this is in context of this promise that reverberates throughout the Bible. It starts in Genesis that Abraham, his descendants will multiply, inherit the earth. And uh, Israel gets this idea that just being part of national Israel gives some sort of claim to salvation. And John is saying that is not true. He says, don't say that. Don't say we have Abraham as our father, because you know what God can do? And God was going to do this on the mountain in Exodus 32, to Moses, he said, "I'm just going to kill all of Israel, and from you make a new people." Because God has contingency plans; God's able to act and react to situations as they come up. And John's saying, "God is innovative, and so your your lineage, it, you know, that doesn't matter. God could kill every single Jew if God wanted, and just raise up new children. And if those people rebel against God, God could kill those people and raise up new children from Abraham, from the stones again." This is how God can fulfill the promise if God wanted. And this is a hyperbole on the part of John the Baptist. Of course, John the Baptist didn't think that himself was not saved, that himself did not pertain the resurrection and the people that he was baptizing. But his point is this, that they can't rely on their lineage to save them. And so he tells them how they could avoid the wrath to come by repenting. This verse is the opposite of Calvinism. This verse is God being innovative to deal with problems as they arise. And Calvinists will often say that. They'll say, if the future's not set, then God doesn't know if anyone's ever going to be saved. You know, they're making the same kind of arguments that the Pharisees and Sadducees were making. And John the Baptist responds to them, yeah, he, he can make sure that people are saved. He can just keep making new people until he finds some that are saved. Because God's innovative And, you know, your little mental trick, your little problem that you kind of throw in God's promise. God's more innovative than you. He's smarter than you. And your objection is, frankly, absurd. And God can do what he wants. And God can get around this and still fulfill his promise through innovative means. And the interesting thing about Matthew 3 is you don't even have to know the context of Abraham's promise to see that This is what these people are thinking. You just have to understand the flow of the text. And let's read it real quick. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so they have to repent, and repenting will flee them from the wrath to come. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. So somehow we have Abraham as our father, is a counter to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And now he's going to counter their counter. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So he's saying that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. That counters their idea that having Abraham as their father really removes this requirement for them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's pretty common sense stuff that this is a contingency plan in case they don't bear fruit. If you have questions or comments about today's podcast, feel free to throw those on the God is Open webpage. Or even the SoundCloud streaming of this podcast, or start a thread in the God is Open Facebook companion group page. Uh, We'd be interested to hear from you. Thank you for listening.